You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Okay, Mark chapter 9. I'll jump in here, and, and if, I, if I hesitate at all, or if, I, if I'm uh, slow to speak, it's because I want to speak really carefully on this subject, and, and it just happens to fall within the, the text of Scripture here. And, and I know that on a day like this, we're, we're celebrating moms in, in the sense of like honoring them for, for the sake of Mother's Day, those things. And I'll say this, I, you know, if you've listened to me teach at all, you know that I don't typically go political in the exegesis of Scripture. But what I've also learned is this, that God through his scripture speaks to every avenue of life and that he has given us instruction from his word on how we are to relate to the world around us. And if we as Christians put blinders on and simply think that by having another Bible study, we're somehow going to change the world, we've missed the boat of Jesus's commission, which is to go out and make disciples, which includes interaction and taking action within the world that he has given us. God has called us to be stewards of this world. And so the thing I need to talk about, just it struck me as I was preparing for this, um, with everything that's going on right now, with the released brief, the illegally released brief from the Supreme Court, that talks about the potential of Roe v. Wade being reversed, and all of the fallout that has come from that, it obviously is taking up the majority of the headlines in terms of the news, but the result of that in regard to us as Christians is this, that there have been multiple people, large numbers of people, who as a act of opposition to those who would pursue godliness and holiness, said that they were gonna go on, on Mother's Day Sunday morning to churches and vandalize churches or interrupt services. And it's happened throughout the United States. And I just thought to myself, I I get political tension. I get different views of politics. I get that even within Christians. They might have different views of how public policy should work. I understand all of that. But the moment that crosses over the line into, we're going to vandalize a church or we're going to disrupt a service because we disagree with what we think you teach about our personal political beliefs, that's where I cross the line. And I say this, we just read it in Psalm 37, don't be angry. And yet I find myself having to, to just calm myself and seek the peace of God and do this. Consider it a tragedy and consider it sad and consider it something that would drive me to Jesus and drive me to go pray for people. Pray that God would change hearts. Pray that God would intervene in someone's thought process and go, that doesn't make sense. The thing that I think politically, that doesn't make sense in the realm of who or what a good person should be. And so I I say this, again, I don't typically go political, but there are moments, unprecedented moments in history and culture that I believe demand the light of God's word to be shown on us for the purpose of conviction. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. My hope is that by hearing the word of God, 
we are convicted about what is right and true and beautiful because those are the things of God. So the word of God for the purpose of conviction, correction. If we at all think differently than God thinks, we're the ones that have the problem. God doesn't have the problem. We have to be corrected in how we think. He's holy. He's perfection. He created everything and has authority over all things. We're just little peons. We're just little minions that he, that he created and he loves us and he cares for us. But the moment that we try and lift up our hearts against God and say, no, we think we know better than you. Whew, where do you think sin entered the world? That's where sin entered the world is where humanity said, I think I know more than you. I think I know better than you. This pride that comes up in our hearts. And ultimately the issue here in speaking of these things has to do with salvation. It has to do with people understanding the heart of God and his love and his care for his people that he created. And that is everyone. Everyone that was ever born. It's who God created. And he has a heart for them and he loves them. So I'll say this as an introduction to where we'll be in the word here in Mark chapter 9. I've become a one-issue voter. There is one issue and one issue alone that I govern myself in politically. If a candidate running for office or a proposed law, either locally or at the state level or federally, is in support for or allows the death of an unborn child, I will oppose that law and that candidate. I don't care whatever else they're campaigning on, what their platform entails, it doesn't matter. I could work through anything else. But if that issue is, is present, I'm done. And in that way, I've become a one-issue voter. Now, I want to say this. I know I'm the one talking tonight. I'm not telling you what to do. But I want to give you a context for how we're going to read Mark chapter 9 here this evening. And so this one issue voter for me uh, uh, is, is important. And the issue of abortion specifically and the killing of innocent life is something that is so very polarizing and so very um, tragic in the way that the language used has pitted people against each other. God says in the scripture, I would that you be hot or cold. But if you're lukewarm, he says, I will spew you out of my mouth in the book of Revelation. You either be hot on an issue or be cold. If you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Okay? This whole idea of I'm going to be moderate on issues. Okay? That causes problem because it compromises the general ethics of what is being discussed. So when we talk about abortion, you have people who are fully in support of it and vulgar to the point of saying that they want to actually kill babies because the rhetoric has gotten so perverted and so gross in our culture that the idea of autonomy and freedom has been taken to the level of saying, I can do whatever I want with impunity, with no consequences for my actions. And the right of the individual is, is the, the most important thing. That'll be a dichotomy for us in just a second. 
But that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the liberal political side of things. The conservative view would be to say, no, abortion is murder. You're killing a human being. It's an individual. And the whole idea of the woman's right and it's her body and get your hands off my body, my body, my choice, all those things is fundamentally flawed because the moment a child is created as a zygote, it has its own DNA. It has its own unique DNA strands, which means that the baby that is inside of the mother is an individual person completely individual. So when the posters go, my body, my choice, get your hands off my body. Fine. Fine. My hands don't want to be on your body, but the body that's in your body, that's the one I'm concerned with. That's the one that is a created image in the image of God whom he loves and desires. And so when we get to this point of like, okay, there's the extreme view. We, we're okay with killing babies versus the conservative view that says, nope, all life matters. And that's what we want to do. The problem comes when you have the middle ground who say, I'm pro-choice. I'm here, pardon me, I'm here to support the choice of the woman, okay? I'm here to support the idea that the woman has the ability because it's her body, it's autonomous, and she's the one that needs to be protected, all these kinds of things. But here's the issue. Politically, when this comes out, and the, and the rhetoric is, this is a woman's issue. So you as a man don't have a right to talk about this. How'd she get pregnant? <laughs> this is not a singularly woman's issue. This is a humanity issue. This isn't just about women and government having control over a woman or telling what, her what she can or can do. This isn't an issue of choice to say that this is pro-choice. In regard to the, the killing of a baby and the death of a child, this has nothing to do with choice. The choice happened when the woman decided to have sexual intercourse. That's when the choice occurred. Because even with uh, uh, preventative measures and all these kinds of things, there's always a risk of getting pregnant. The pill doesn't work 100%. Condoms don't work 100%. Okay? All of... Amen and hallelujah. So, so that, that, that's how God grows his kingdom. All right, so listen, listen. The point being, the point being is this. The choice issue and the choice discussion of trying, someone trying to be moderate and go, well, I want to protect the mother and make sure that if there's a situation she's cared for, I wouldn't have an abortion, but if someone else wants that choice, go ahead. This, that, we're, we're already far beyond where that choice took place, okay? Let me give you a couple of statistics here. And again, I don't want to go too far here, but this is important for us to at least hear and be able to process because it's not the rhetoric that we're going to hear a lot in mainstream media. And it's this. Most people who are pro-choice will say several things. They'll say, I'm pro-choice. I wouldn't have an abortion. I wouldn't support abortions. In fact, Joe Biden, there's a clip of him going around uh, about 15 years ago where he says, I'm not in support of abortion. He, in his Catholic faith, says, I'm not in support of abortion. In fact, I think we should reduce abortions, and it should only be used in situations where the mother's life is in danger or in cases like rape or incest, where there's been a crime perpetrated on the person. And he says, that's, those are the things that abortion should be allowed for medically. And that's the common report of people who say, I'm pro-choice. I want to be moderate on this issue. Now, here's the problem with that. The Guttmacher Institute was started in 1966 by Dr. Alan Guttmacher. And he does, this is a completely secular organization. This isn't a religious or faith-based organization, but it's a national organization that does studies in sexual ethics and behaviors in the United States of America. And so they track abortions and they, they do the research on why people get abortions. According to the Guttmacher Institute, less than 
percent, less than half a percent, point, less than 0.3% of abortions are due to rape, okay? Less than 0.03% of abortions are due to incest, okay? Less than 0.1% of abortions are due to risk to maternal life. And even since then, this, this study is about six years old or so, and, and, and the, this research is from about six years ago. Even since then, it's been updated to the point where most experts are saying there is not a single medical condition that a pregnant woman goes through that can't be fixed without having an abortion. Meaning there's no medical procedure that, or there's no medical condition that a woman is going through that would cause her to have to have an abortion to save her life. So that rhetoric that, that is going through our culture can't use the language I want to use. It's garbage. Okay? It's garbage. Now, here's the thing. You say, okay, but even less than 0.03% in terms of incest, that's horrible. Or 0.3% rape. Like, why, what's, why wouldn't we allow it in that case? Because here's the fundamental ethic, especially for those who claim to be Christians. This is the fundamental ethic. You don't respond to violence with violence. You don't make better the situation by being evil. You don't, you don't justify killing with killing. Does that make sense? Is, are you hearing what I'm saying? Like to say someone did something violent to me and now I have the consequences of that violence in my body. Therefore, to solve that problem for me, I get to be violent in return and kill the baby. That doesn't solve the problem. And anyone who has tragically gone through that scenario in their life would say the same thing. Here, here's the, the one caveat that I need to add to this discussion because, because it is so tragic and it is so sad. And, and what I know from experience in regard to being with people who've gone through this is the extreme guilt that people feel, the, the mental and emotional torment that comes, around, uh, comes through them as a result of being put in a position where they felt like they had to make this decision, here's what everyone needs to hear. If you've been in that position, if you've had an abortion, you know someone who's had an abortion, understand that there is not a singular sin of any kind that separates us from God that cannot be forgiven. There is not a singular situation in the life of any person that if they were to come to God and pour out their heart and say, I'm hurt, I'm wounded, I'm angry, I don't know how to process this, that God will not heal. He may go through a process. It may take time. It may take years. It may take counseling. It may take the love of a community to surround someone and constantly encourage them. But if that's the situation you found yourself in at any point or someone that you know, you can speak truthfully and say, God loves you and he can forgive you, he can restore you, and he can make you whole. So as Christians, we have to balance these things out. We have to have this view that a lot of people are just going to be angry about, where we say, no, the issue here is not about a woman's choice, it's not about her body, it's about the life of a baby, because this is the fundamental difference between those who support abortion and those who don't. Has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with public health, has nothing to do with the safety of the mother, that's not the issue. The issue is, when does life begin? When does life begin? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. 
Jeremiah chapter one, verse five. God says, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Life doesn't begin when you breach the birthing canal and take your first breath. Life, according to God, begins when he came up with the idea of humanity. And from time immemorial, from time eternal, God thought about each individual person and knew them before they ever even existed in their mother's womb. This is why we as Christians, as believers in Jesus, can say that baby is a person whom God knows and loves. Now, last statistic I want to give you in regard to this. Again, from the Guttmacher Institute. The rhetoric politically will say, we want abortion available, safe abortions available for mothers who are in crisis, life's in danger, uh, extreme violent circumstances, those kinds of things. But in their research, they found that the overwhelming reason 74% of people who get abortions, women who get abortions, 74%, when asked privately with no fear of their name being recognized, when they give their answers to why they got an abortion, 74% of women say it's the fact that having a baby would dramatically change their life. Whether that's economically or because they weren't actually in a committed relationship with the person that they were impregnated by, or they already have children, or whatever the case might be, 74% of women have abortions simply because the idea of having that child would disrupt their life in, the, in their current circumstances. I, I can't imagine being in that position. I can't make a judgment call on what that would feel like. But I know this, that if anyone did anything to harm one of my children... Throw me in prison. I don't care. Fine. If anybody comes for my kids, they're going down. That includes kids that aren't physically in my arms yet. Yeah? Now, Scripture's clear. If we're faithful to confess our sins, John chapter 1 says, or 1 John chapter 1 says that God is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read Psalm 37. Don't be angry. Forgo your wrath. The answer for this issue, for us as Christians, okay, is not necessarily to picket in response to the picketing of the pro-abortion lobby. It's not to stand on a line and yell at someone back. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. Like, that's never going to accomplish anything. The things that we do as Christians, we talked about this last week at Bible study, the two tools that Jesus has given his disciples to fight against the evils of the world. Number one, prayer. Man, we need to be on our knees. We need to be in prayer. Spend more time in prayer. And when we're offended by something that's going on publicly, when we're offended by something that's political, when we see the destruction of the the definitions of Christian reality through the politics of the world, we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray. In addition to prayer, we fast. We sacrifice something from ourselves for the purpose of asking God to move his will in other situations. And so, man, if this is something that strikes you as 
as tragic and, and something that is a plague upon our society, which it is, fast and pray. Offer these things to the Lord. And then, and then, here's the key. We as the body of Christ, open our arms and absolutely love everybody, recognizing that, but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah? In so many situations that we open our arms to those who are wounded, hurt, that need the love of Christ. We say, come and be embraced. Whatever it is that you've gone through, Jesus can handle it. I can't, but I know the one who can. Now, here's why I believe this is, here's why I think I have the opportunity and even the ability to speak of this, because there are some people who would say, Lucian, don't talk about that in church. That's a political issue. We're here for Jesus. We're here for the scripture. Mark chapter 9, please. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Let's read this section, and then I want to I show you why I believe that this is relevant to us in regard to our discipleship, in regard to Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and take him, take, taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus has uh, been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John see him in his illuminated state, his glorified state, a picture, a window into heaven about what eternity is going to be like where Jesus lights everything up. He comes down the hill. He encounters a man with a demon-possessed son. The disciples have been trying to to heal the, the boy and cast out the demon. They can't do it. Jesus shows up and goes... I'll take care of this. And the disciples are like, how come we couldn't do it? Like we were just doing what you would have done, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, because you didn't fast and pray about this specific issue. Certain demonic elements can only be cast out by fasting and praying, not just being spiritual, not just with biblical knowledge, but surrender and devotion to the Lord. That's how it works. Now, after the fact, they're now walking as they do, And Jesus is leading the way, apparently. And within the disciples, they have a little discussion among themselves. Who do you think is the best of us? (laughs) Why would the conversation come up? Because Peter, James, and John were just on the mountain with Jesus, and they saw him illuminated. The other guys didn't. I don't do math well, but that's nine guys who were looking at Peter, James, and John going, why'd they get to go up on the mountain? How come they got to see Moses and Elijah? Why don't we get to do that kind of stuff? And Peter, James, and John are probably just thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm just that much holier than you are. Maybe I've listened more to Jesus' teaching. Maybe I get it more than you do. And yet there's this discussion going on. Jesus, your kingdom is going to come. We all believe that. We all believe that you're the Messiah, that you're the king. But here's the thing. There's 12 of us. And in, in the way that a king operates... He's got like a cabinet, kind of like a president, where he's got a chief of staff, and then he's got a, a director over this department, right? And so maybe, maybe, maybe Peter, the, the bold one who talks a lot, who likes to pick up swords and cut off ears 
is like, I want to be in charge of the military. Jesus, you got a kingdom. That means you're going to need a military. Maybe I could be the one who's in charge of the military, right? And maybe John, right, the one who's real quick and the one who Jesus loved, maybe he's thinking, I'm his right-hand man. I'm going to be the chief of staff. I'll get to tell everybody else what to do. And maybe Judas is sitting there going, maybe I should be in charge of the money. (laughs) They're arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest. It's kind of like siblings arguing about which child is their parent's favorite, right? On one level, it's sort of like, oh, that's cute. (laughs) Who do you love most, right? Like who's, who's good today and who do you love the most, right? That's a fun conversation. But the problem is that it can turn sinister. And as people get older and enter into adult life, we see that little competition that goes on between sibling, siblings turn ugly sometimes, especially when it has to do with uh, inheritance and money and houses and grandma's tea set and things like that. We laugh. I'm telling you, I've seen families destroyed based on who got what out of the garage, right? So this, these things, you know, at, at first they're a little bit funny, but you have to recognize that they can turn on themselves real quick. And so Jesus, I think this is one of the things that I, I really appreciate about him in regard to how he relates to his people is that God gives him insight into things that are taking place that he doesn't actually, like he hasn't actually heard, right? So he knows what's in their heart. He knows what they're struggling with and what they're working through. That while they should be focusing on him being the Messiah, pointing people to him to heal them, all of those things, they're wasting their time talking about who's going to get to sit on his right hand and who's going to sit on his left hand. In fact, two of the guys are like, hey, mom, why don't you uh, go talk to Jesus and see if he can secure some positions for us, right? Silly. But, but here's, here's what happens in response to this. Verse 35. And Jesus sat down and he called the 12. And Jesus then, in my opinion, lays out perhaps the most difficult, but the most life-transforming teaching in all of scripture. I think, I'm prone to exaggeration, you all know this. I'm prone to hyperbole, the greatest, the best, the most, whatever. I really do think that after the scandal of grace that if you believe upon Jesus, your sins can be forgiven, that being sort of the number one mind-blowing thing that is available to humanity, that God would forgive us of our sins and welcome us into his family, that's number one. I think this is the most life-changing truth that Jesus ever expresses. Verse 35, he sat down, called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. As a kid going to church and hearing scripture and learning scripture in Sunday school, all those kinds of things, that became a little like nursery rhyme for us. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so the way that we applied that was like in the lunch line at school. Hey, I'm last in line. The Bible says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Therefore, I'm entitled to skip all of you fools and get to the front of the line and get my hot dog earlier, right? Like silly stuff like that, right? It becomes this little little nursery rhyme for us who've memorized Bible verses, but we, we like the first part. This is often the case of Jesus' teaching. He lays things out. He lays the truth out. And we like the general idea of what he's saying. Yeah, that's really great. That, that's justice. Those who are last, they should be first. And those who are first and maybe have more, maybe they should take a back seat. But we like the idea of justice. We like the idea of equality. We like the idea that just because someone had an advantage, that they share with other people, all those kinds of things. 
but it's not the full statement. Read what Jesus says with me. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I'm with you up until last shall be first and the first shall be last. I'm good with that, Jesus. But servant of all? When do I get to do anything? When do I get to get my stuff? And what about my time and my interest and all those kinds of things? Right? Me, 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 me. I'll serve to a point, but come on, let's be reasonable. I need to be taken care of as well. I believe this is life transforming because if we take it to heart, if we hear what Jesus is saying, and, and we understand that he's not just talking about like mental, emotional, or spiritual humility here. He's talking about concrete, physical expectation that, that we, in our representation of Jesus to the world around us, would sacrifice what's most important to us. Us. If we're really true with ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves, I should say, the most important thing in our lives is not our children. We love our children. They're important to us. We love our spouses. We love the things that God has blessed. But if we're really, really honest with ourselves, the most important things to ourselves is what? Ourselves. <laughs> like, like it, it, that's, that's the world that we live in, that we're more concerned with our flourishing and what is good for us in comparison to other people than anything else. But what Jesus says is that if you really are going to follow me and my teaching, and here's the catch, you're going to follow my example because Jesus is the example of holiness to us. Everything he does is right. And if God says that you're supposed to be holy, like I'm holy, then we need to copy what Jesus does. And Jesus says, not only should the first be last and the last be first, but that person should also be the servant of all. Mark this. This is the lesson. This is the important point to walk out the door with. Selfishness is not a part of the kingdom of God. Selfishness is not a part of the kingdom of God. Modern psychology would tell you something like this. You have to love yourself before you can love anyone else. You need to be whole. You need to be healed. You need to be uh, accepted for who you are before you can actively engage and really love other people and take care of other people, you need to feel fulfilled. If you're not, then it's just going to mess things up. I get the thought. I get the idea. But within the Christian context, within the context of who God has called us to be and the things that Jesus says in scripture, it's more in line for us in this way. That if we acknowledge that God can forgive us, of our sins and our failures before him, if we could acknowledge and accept God's forgiveness and receive love from God, then we're able to love other people, right? God has forgiven you, therefore you must forgive others. See, that's where love comes from, is this acceptance of like, ah, the thing that has separated us, it's gone, it's out of the way. That's where love can really exist. That's where you and I could actually truly love someone when we're not holding something over their head and trying to make them feel guilty of the wrong that they did to us and keep a record of wrongs. No, we actually just let that go and we forgive them and then we are open to love them. 
So Jesus illustrates this perfectly. And this is why I believe the political overtones of what we talked about at the beginning are found here in scripture. This idea of being first of all uh, and, and being the best in the kingdom and the servant of all, he exemplifies. He shows it to us in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus illustrates this truth of sacrifice and love and being the greatest by using a child. And understand culturally in that day and age, women and children were second-class citizens. They simply served a purpose. Don't ever, ever allow anybody to tell you that the God of the Bible is sexist or that God doesn't respect women or that Christians historically have been abusive to women and, and, and uh, allowed justified uh, husbands being dominant over their wives and these kinds of things. Has that happened? Yes. Has it happened in opposition to what God's word says? Absolutely, yes. Because 1 Peter chapter 3 says that husbands, you live with your wives in an understanding fashion, meaning be compassionate to her. If you don't, God says, there will be a cap on your prayers. If you're not generous and kind and compassionate to your wife, the prayers that you're praying so fervently, God doesn't even hear them. That's how serious God is about how men are supposed to treat women. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Christianity is a sexist religion. All men and women, all men and women were created in God's image. I love the Latin. I love the phrase imago dei, right? The image of God. That's how we were created. And all attributes, like I said earlier, all the best attributes of a man and all the best attributes of a woman, they're found in God. Because although we refer to God in the masculine as father, he is everything. He supersedes gender. He's everything. And so God in his care for humanity, male and female, is shown by Jesus here culturally to say, I'm going to take a child and I'm going to tell you disciples. It's not about who saw Moses and Elijah and was on the mountain with me. It's not the one who's most passionate. It's not the one who's most zealous. It's the one who's like a little kid who's just trying to do what's right and be obedient. In Matthew's accounting of this, it says that Jesus called the child to himself. He didn't just go grab him and bring him. He called as if to say, child, come here. How are we supposed to be in the kingdom of God? We're supposed to be obedient. That little child who gets called by Jesus, hey, come here. I need to talk to you. When God says, come here, just obey. Go where he says to go. Do what he says to do. And here's, I believe, what Jesus is saying is that if we disregard children... We are disregarding the work of Christ because his redemption on the cross was for all people, regardless of age, regardless of color, regardless of gender or social status or social class. Jesus died for all people. And if we disregard even a little child, it's just, it's just biological matter. It's not even a baby, it's a fetus. If we disregard children in that way, we're disregarding the work of Christ. 
And if we disregard the work of Christ, if we disregard Jesus, we're not just disregarding him. We're disregarding God, who is the creator of all things. That chain is tragic. That if someone were to do one, I I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in a woman's right to choose. Scripture would say, if you're not honoring that child, you're not honoring Jesus. And if you're not honoring Jesus, you're not honoring God the Father. I'm going to say something incredibly bold that people can feel free to disagree with. But this is my deep conviction. If a person believes that it's okay to kill an unborn child, I don't think that they can claim to serve the Jesus that we see in the Bible. I think it's a fundamental contradiction. And I don't think those people who call themselves Christians who support a woman's right to choose... I'm not God, so God help me. But I don't see how they can reconcile those two things, according to what Scripture says. I just, I don't. I don't want to make anybody angry. I don't want to get in a fight with anybody necessarily. But I don't see how those things are reconciled. And so what Jesus says here and what he shows here by welcoming this child and telling the disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the the essential truth that has implications for us in all areas of life, in how we serve people, in how we look to kill our selfishness and say, I'm not the most important person in the room. Everybody else is more important than me. If I actually want to be great in regard to what God says of his kingdom, I want to serve everybody else. I want to make sure everybody... Now, here's the thing I talk about in terms of um, marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, right? Paul talks about how husbands and wives are supposed to love each other. And in Philippians 2, he talks about how if there's any love, if there's any agreement, if there's anything that you have in between you, mutual affection, then serve one another. Outdo one another in showing honor to each other. I always tell young married couples, I said, listen, the goal of being married is this, to do everything you can to bless your spouse. Do everything in your power to serve them and to just pump them up and to love them. And here's the response that they should have to turn around and try and serve and love and pump up the person. I always say it's like, it's like this. You'll never, ever be able to make a decision in life, but you'll be so deliriously happy it won't matter, right? What do you want to do today, babe? What do you want to do today, babe? Like, whatever you want. No, 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 no. Whatever you want to do, I'll do that. I know, but whatever you want to do. You'll never decide where to eat dinner. You'll never decide what to do. You'll never decide where to go to a walk, but you'll be so stupidly happy about it. It won't matter that nothing ever gets done. This is the kind of service that we're supposed to have for one another, that in the body of Christ, like somehow everything gets set up, but we should be doing it in such a way that everybody feels good about it. And it's just like, oh man, like, how is it that we got to just be here and just, I don't know, like the thing got set up and the guy sang and we did the thing, but I'm just happy. Like, that's what it should be like. And I think that's what Jesus is showing us here, guys. The kingdom of God is built by the followers of Jesus by not simply thinking about what we get out of the transaction. I've prayed a prayer. I've confessed my sin. I've repented. I have the hope of eternity. I'm set. It's not the end of the story. If we receive something from Jesus in regard to our personal salvation, the truth is is that the kingdom of God is built by the followers of Jesus asking ourselves this question, how can I serve someone else? How can I make sure that by the end of my day, I have done something that is a blessing for someone else so that they got something good out of it, no matter whether I got the short end of the stick or not. 
In fact, ultimate cosmic short ends of the stick, Jesus crucified. If I lose something of value to me because it was a blessing for someone else, awesome. Don't complain about it. Don't post it on Facebook. Don't write it in your journal and go, God, I did this good thing, but man, it made me angry. (laughs) Kill that sucker, like, kill that thought. Think about what was good and noble and, and righteous in the things that you did. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of God's kingdom. I know that any time we talk about volatile things, politics being a primary one, I know everybody has different experiences. I know everybody has different relationships. And I know that a conversation like this, to hear someone who's putting himself in a position of, of sharing thoughts and, and interpreting to the best of my ability what I believe Scripture says, I know it can be challenging and that you could take issue with probably a number of things that I've said. My hope truly and my prayer, honestly, in in preparing for this is not that you think the way I think politically necessarily or that you claim to be a one-issue voter because Lukian said he's a one-issue voter. That's not my purpose at all. But rather to see in the accounting of Jesus a way to filter the world and view the world through that would draw us closer to God's desire for his kingdom than for us to feel like we had our voice heard because somehow our opinion matters. That's what I want, is for you to be able to have that framework or that filter to set over the world and go that political idea or thought, that candidate, that relationship that I have, is that ultimately serving something that would point to Jesus? Or is it serving something that is selfish? Selfishness is not a part of the kingdom of God. Service and sacrifice are. 